I was already in uniform when the towers fell. And like most Americans at the time, I was incensed by the tremendous loss and eager to do my part. I would deploy several times in support of the global war on terror. I was in the initial invasion of Iraq, the battle for Fallujah, fought in Wardak, Ghazni, and Helmand provinces in Afghanistan. I spent my entire adult life training for war or actively participating in it. I never felt fear until my deployment to Afghanistan in 2013. Green on blue incidents. Afghan partners attacking American service members. We're killing more troops than conventional battle and victim-initiated IEDs were a common tool used by the enemy. Each time I went on patrol, the dread associated with not knowing how or when I might lose my life or be injured terribly gnawed at me. Moreover, the fear that one of my soldiers, I was a platoon leader at the time, might meet a similar fate often kept me up at night. We were co-located with our Afghan partners at one of the last remaining joint security stations in Afghanistan. The threat of them turning on us had our backs to the wall, and tension permeated the air. It was a difficult time. As leaders, it was our job to prepare for the known and unknowable. I'm reminded of that uncertainty during these tumultuous times. We sit at home in private, dealing with the unknown. But you are not alone. Welcome to Glorious Professionals, episode 21. I'm Jason, here with Rich, and our guest today is Ben Bunn, former Green Beret and owner of Cigar City CrossFit in Tampa. He's joining us live in our studio, also known as the Champagne Room, and just got done telling us that this is how you should podcast people. So we're at GORUCK HQ to, to, to chat service, leadership, entrepreneurship, lessons learned, and Basically, whatever the hell else comes up with three Green Berets shooting the shit team room style. Ben, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Flattered. <laughs> All right. Let's start with service and sort of how you came to, to join the military. What was the impetus? So I wish I could say that I joined the military because I was like a service-oriented young man. Like I'd played team sports. I was like captain of the football team. The next step was, you know, for me to adorn red, white, and blue via camo and go serve my country. But that, that wasn't it. I had no machinations whatsoever to serve my country. As a matter of fact, like when I was a kid, circa, you know, late 90s, I was listening to punk rock. And I had severe disdain for all authority, for the government, for everything. You know, I mean, just misplaced disdain. Didn't even have a place to direct it, to be completely honest. But... um. I got in a little bit of trouble when I was in high school. So and, what kind of trouble are we talking about? Oh my God. High school pranks. It was, you know, I wasn't like a, a real social deviant. I wasn't like a violent criminal or selling drugs or something like that, but no joke. I had, and this is funny because my 20 year high school reunion is coming up and this is, this is going to come up at the 20 year high school reunion. I will be asked about this. So I participated in a series of high school pranks that got way out of hand. Like it cost the city of, City of Tampa and Hillsborough County, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to the point where they actually assigned a DA to prosecute us. And that's how, that's when you know that, that crime has become serious is when a district attorney is emotionally invested in prosecuting you. So I, uh, I of course, got in a, a lot of trouble, almost got expelled. So um, like what though? Spray paint? Um, so it, it got a little bit more involved than that. At first, um, we, you know, they had these golf carts that they would kind of drive around campus on. 
So we stole those and drove them into the pond in front of uh, the the high school. And, you know, there's a, a big picturesque pond in front of the high school. We drove those in there. Uh, then we started uh, getting real into, like, digging. So we were going to dig the words, screw you, Bloomingdale, into the ground very large so that it could be seen from a helicopter, although obviously that would only be appreciated by a very small group of people. But as we were digging, we figured out that was really difficult. I would later dig much more in my life, and I would have – I understand it now. I'd have been like, hey, I, I would have been able to assess and been like, that's too much work. So we ended up just like digging the word shit into the ground as you walk up to the school, which, uh, you know, then was filled in. It was a big brown shit. Then grass grew over it. It was a big green grassy shit, this kind of stuff. Um, but finally, we um, we ended up actually affecting the sewer systems in the building. We had concrete, uh, con- like like pounded rebar into the ground and poured concrete over uh, the wheels to the gate that open up so that buses can drive into the school and actually made it so that buses could not drop off students one day. Um, and so like this just like started compounding. So these were all things that we had done over like a series of like a couple months. Um, and then finally Hillsborough County like got wind of it and they were furious and we had caused municipal damage at one point where the city had to get involved and repair stuff. And that's when it got like really serious. Um, the two other kids that had been involved in it, one of, you know, one came from an affluent family. The other guy's dad was like a one-star general and my parents were just like educators. So they were like, that guy's going to jail. (laughs) So, (laughs) but I ended up kind of, uh, cutting a bit of a deal. It was sort of like pretrial intervention where, you know, I said, Hey, this was my role in it. This is what I did. I apologize. I'm super sorry. And uh, I'm also going to join the National Guard. And they were like, okay, you're good. Stay out of trouble. And that was kind of how I found my way in into uniform. And All right. So what year is that? This was in 1999. I joined when I was 17 years old. At basic training, there was, you know, one of the songs, it's it's like, go to war, go to jail. Yeah. And it won't be long. And that was, and that was me. I was I get home, back home. Yeah. And I was the go to war, go to jail kid. Yeah. Um, you know, but that, that being said at the time we were peacetime army. I didn't think I was going to war. I was like, Oh, this will be the chillest. I'm just going to like, you know, go learn to shoot an M16, wear camouflage every now and again, chicks will dig it. It's like paintball or something. I thought it was way cooler. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's what I thought I was getting into. Um, little did I know, but things obviously changed drastic. And I used to tell people, I was like, you know, People would be like, what if, what if the country goes to war? And I was like, first off, that's ridiculous. Um, but I was like, secondly, I was like, oh, I'd slam my leg in a door. Obviously, having no idea the way that I would feel like when September 11th happened. Having no idea what it would mean for the country to be mobilized in such a way where we were all, all so unanimously beside ourselves at what had happened. And by the, when, when that time did come, I, I'm telling you, the furthest thing that I thought about doing was slamming my leg in a door. I wanted to do everything I could to get over there as quickly as possible. So just right now, I was expecting to ask you about where you were 9-11, because obviously, you know, we're, we're about the same age. So, like, as you started talking about, you can see the goosebumps yeah. on my arm right now. Yeah. It, it's like, you took me by surprise bringing that up. And I suspect, and Rich probably knows, like, is this going to happen my entire life, Rich? Oh, yeah, it will. There are events in our lives that we don't have control over, but they control us to a certain degree. They control our emotions. They trigger emotions within us. 
Yeah. So that's, that's nine 11. And, and so you're, you're not going to jump off the whatever and break your leg. You're not going to slam a door in it. So what happens? Well, I was, I was actually at school at the time. I was at Hillsborough community college. I was an ROTC at the time and I was in uniform. It was like a Tuesday and we had to show up for the ROTC class. So I was, you know, in uniform. And I remember, I remember a guy named DeGrando his last name was DeGrando, which, you know, for the Spanish speakers out there, that means it's a great one in Spanish. Great kid. We used to play chess together when I was still in high school. And uh, we ended up going to the same local community college. And I saw him, like, in passing, walking the hallway, and he goes, he goes, man, can you believe it? Somebody just drove an airplane into the Twin Towers. And, you know, I've, and I remember to this day because I, was, I acted flippantly because I thought in my head it was a Cessna. I thought, like, somebody had driven, like, some goober, I just driven a single engine Cessna into the World Trade Center, and I was like, "What a dumbass!" And then, well, if you remember, just before nine eleven, yeah, JFK Jr. had crashed his his plane and, and tragically died. I can't believe you remember that, but yes, and that's how it went down. Well, that's immediately what what went through my head was, "Oh, it's probably like that. That really sucks." Exactly, and, and it really sucks to be on the inside of the building, and it really sucks if you're, you know, driving the plane, but. Yep it's or flying the plane. It's just that, that was one of those kind of trigger points that I, I definitely remember. I remember it. And well, uh, there was actually some, some early reporting that a Cessna or a small single engine aircraft had run into the building. They didn't know it was an airliner for a few minutes. Yeah. And the, and the speed at which we got information then was very different. You know, that my phone was used for phone calls and to play a, a game where a snake chases around a pebble on a black and white screen, you know? <laughs> and so I would have had to have like gone and sat in my car and listened to the radio to really get a grip on what was going on. So I went into the small cafeteria to get an obscenely hot cup of coffee. And I was kind of standing there. And as I was checking out, I saw the smoke pouring out of the World Trade Center, and it became like very clear what was going on. There was no doubt in my mind. Nobody, nobody had any doubt of, about what had just happened. We knew it was an attack. We just didn't know what else was going to follow. What did it mean for us? Who had done it? All these like all these questions that kind of hung in the air. But there was no doubt in my mind that we were under attack. And I remember I set the coffee down. My head hung low, and I looked down at my legs and my feet, which I had bloused boots. You know. <laughs> And I was like, oh, my God, like, my, my life is getting ready to change. For real, it's getting ready to change. And I, I left. I left school immediately, and I went home, and I watched the rest of it un unfold on the television in my mom's living room. And I wasn't wrong. The rest of my life literally changed that day. That changed the entire trajectory in my life, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, it was the same for me. I wasn't already in, but, you know, it was one of those moments. Nothing was the same for me afterwards. And it's, it's easy now to kind of connect the dots. It's also somewhat complicated now to sit and look at 9-11 and say there was a lot of good that came out of it. And, and as we're in the middle of where we are now, it's, it's hard to see the, the forest through the trees. But before we get to that, let's talk about the next step. It's 9-11 and, and then what? So it took, it took a while. It was a slow roll before the invasion in Iraq happened. I, you know, and at the time, I was just like a, a radio guy. I was nobody special in the military of any variety. I took a low-skill job that I thought might have some amount of carryover in the private sector um, that offered a bonus at the time. Um, so I wasn't a combat arms MOS. 
And I watched from afar for about a good year and a half as, you know, Rangers and Special Forces invaded Afghanistan with great success. Their, their initial invasion into Afghanistan um, had, had what I would construe as an excellent measure of success, at least initially. Um, they did exactly what they went there to do. They, they toppled the Taliban in, in short order, occupied the country. Um, and then kind of just like planted deep roots. But a as we all know, as the situation developed, you know, it wasn't too long after that, you know, our sites settled very clearly on the country of Iraq. And my unit was called up to deploy with everyone else. Um, I was in a field artillery unit at the time, an MLRS unit. It stands for Multiple Launch Rocket Systems. It's like they shoot these big telephone pole sized rockets. They're actually pretty radical. You can like blow up a whole grid square with them. But as somebody that now hails from combat arms, I'm like, that's lame. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but uh, I'm like, yeah, come on, let's get to something else. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I don't want the specs on all that stuff. Yeah, put, no. your, put your foot on the pedal. Talk about the cool stuff. <laughs> so I got piecemealed out to an, a light infantry unit of all things. And uh, the, the scout platoon at the time like was down an RTO. And they were like, Hey, dude, you look, you look like an infantry guy. You're like over six foot tall, you know, kind of muscly. You're going to be in the scout platoon. And I was like, what? Like, who are they? What do they do? Um, having no idea that, you know, the scout platoon was kind of like the premier infantry guys inside that battalion. And then later on, they would send me to Lurslick so that I could like help kind of like acclimate me to, you know, uh, uh, an environment of nothing but uh, ground pounders. They sent me to PLDC. This is all leading up to the initial invasion in Iraq. I was like at Fort Stewart, Georgia for like three months, just hanging out, sleeping in barracks. But it was a, it was like a traditional army experience and it was, it was good for me. And I, and I grew and I learned and I really embraced soldiering and enjoyed it a great deal. And then you know, we got pulled into the initial invasion into Iraq and we were attached to various units. And I stayed, you know, in the, uh, what was the officer's club in, in central Baghdad across the street from their version of the MEPS, their military entrance and processing center uh, for like 15 months. I mean, that was just, I mean, that was a long haul. And what was interesting about it is a lot of guys had a very difficult time and I did not. I did not have a bad time. I was like, this is the raddest shit that's ever happened to me. You know what I mean? Like, I just grew up in Tampa, Florida. I didn't do anything. There was nothing special about me. You know, I didn't play sports. I didn't get the girls. I wasn't particularly smart, articulate, handsome, anything. I was just a gray man. You're fond of posting old pictures of yourself, which is always funny, yeah. right? It's like, because, you know, you look like a big freedom-fighting Green Beret now. Yeah. Right. And, it, and like late bloomer, chuckle, chuckle, whatever you want to call it. But you're based on those pictures, your description now is accurate. Yeah. And you were kind of a skinny, by the way, I'm, I'm sort of smiling because I was the same way. Right. Yeah. So I'm not exactly describing myself or anything. It's just, it's, it's like, you know, you, you were scrawny almost. I was. And now you own a CrossFit box, which we'll talk about. Yep. And, and you look like you own a CrossFit box and you, you have a lot of stuff sandwiched in the in the middle between this scrawny kid and 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 kind of fit in that mold well it was interesting because you know when i deployed i left for so long it was a long I, I don't think i'd ever spent the longest time i'd ever spent away from home was when i went to basic training in ait and you know i doubled down on it when i went to deploy for the initial invasion to iraq but I became a man in Iraq, and I'm not saying that in some like romantic sense, like you know, dudes used to join the French Foreign Legion so they could like, you know, when they came back and they were a man. 
like I literally finished going through puberty. Like I grew, I grew three, three inches. I gained like 50 pounds and I came back and people did not recognize me at first glance. So when I came back from Iraq, it was, it was one of these things that were like, Jesus, like what happened over there? And I was like, well, you know, a bunch of stuff, um, but <laughs> up to and including my testosterone levels increased for whatever reason, you know, like a literal late bloomer. But I, I, I say it's figurative and literal. I, you know, grew into who I was there. And then I also, you know, happened to figure out that while I was there, I was like, Hey, you know, some people deal with stress, warfare, this kind of stuff in very different ways. But for me, even though there were portions of that deployment, there were definitely times that were very difficult, challenging physically, mentally, in every way that you can imagine. But I also, it felt like a a big grand adventure to me. You know, I'd left home to go seek out adventure and see these incredible things, do these incredible things. And I became uh, this person that was very different from that scrawny kid that we're talking about. And that's sometimes why I post those pictures because it provides context, you know? You know, you see this, this just this kid, right? And I'm very different from, from who I was then based on who I am now, but, and I owe a lot of it to the military. I, I owe it to that deployment. I owe it to 9-11. It's who I am now. It, you know, it's because of all those things. So, so, it's, so what was the adversity that you overcame or what, what was the fear factor? Or what was the, you, what was it? Cause it, it's not just summer camp going over there. Yeah. It was exhausting because it, the deployment, we didn't know when we were going to come home. They didn't even tell us. They're like, you have no idea when, we're, when you're going to go back. The, there was no like deployment link that was set in stone. We didn't have return orders. Like at the time we were like, yeah, man, the, the, you know, the Gulf War lasted for like 84 days. You know, we'll be back in three months, guys. This is, you know, Q1, let's go have war with, you know, with Iraq. And Q2 will be cheers and cold yeah. beers. But that's not how it went down. As, as we all know, we got there and, and things started to unfold in a way that was more complicated than what we thought. And what turned into three months then turned into six and then nine and then 12 and then 15. And it was difficult in that, there was a lot of uncertainty present. We didn't know when we were going to go home. And, you know, the initial invasion was its own kind of wild west. You know, we fought our way to Baghdad. Um, you know, I, I think for me, I, the way it took us is we went from Talil and then went from Talil to Baghdad. And then we just kind of stayed put in Baghdad. And there were some times where we actually got pushed forward to some different areas in the surrounding um Baghdad area, like Sadr City and a couple other places. But for the most part, we just hung out in Baghdad. But we watched, you know, essentially that whole regime topple, and we thought it was over, and then an insurgency happened. And that that also had a slow roll, and it kind of came out of nowhere, and we would hear about IEDs and stuff like that. And then it got— Roadside bombs, yeah, right. Yeah, and then all of a sudden it was just happening every single day. And then there was brand-new danger present that we weren't expecting. You kind of backed into this whole thing. You did not march into it. You you came in, I won't say you came in the back door, but you kind of backed into this whole process of into the military. And and I hear you talking about change. I don't think you knew it was occurring at the time. I didn't. I think it just kind of came on you, and it was a mantle that you assumed as your role changed within the military. You know, a lot of people say, okay— you're going to go fight. You're going to go for the Rangers or you're going to go for special forces and and you're going to get in there and you're just, and you kind of took a different route, which is an interesting route that I think a lot of people have taken, but they just don't talk about it a lot. Yeah. I mean, it, 
a lot of times it felt like I was stumbling into it. Like I was like, what am I doing here? You know? And I remember, um, it wasn't until towards the end of that first deployment, I had a good friend, a great friend. You make these great friends on deployments, right? And it was a guy named Brandon Atkins and he had, um, gone to selection previously, but then been hurt terribly in a motorcycle accident. It was no longer medically able to attend the special forces qualification course. And he goes, you know what, Ben? He's like, you're pretty good at this. He's like, you, you know, you should just join the special forces. And I was like, what? You know, what are you even, what are you even talking about, man? You're bananas. Like, I'm a radio guy. You know, I'm just some nerd. And I remember at the time we were sitting at a table with a couple of other guys and they're like, no, he's right. You know, and, I, and it was news to me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was news. Sure. Nowhere at this point in time that we're talking about that this was occurring, had you looked at and said, okay, I now need to be at the tip of the spear. No, I, I hadn't been. And I mean, I was young, you know, I mean, I, sure. I, I turned 21 in Baghdad. I didn't even know it was my birthday. I was like, somebody came by a couple of weeks later and was like, it's my birthday, man. It's like May something. I was like, I got a weird look on my face. And he's like, what? And I was like, damn, I turned 21 like two and a half weeks ago. And I, I didn't even know, you know, because the city was burning around me, you know what yeah. I mean? So well, on top I, of that, you never tell anybody your birthday in the military. It's not, like it's, the, it's, it's not it's, the move. It's not the move. It's not and, the move. And, and, and I get you because I turned 21 on my first tour in Vietnam. Yeah. And I hadn't told anybody about it. And all of a sudden it was like somebody found out and they said, hey, you can, you can buy booze now. And hell, I'd been buying booze for months yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at, at the PX and nobody yeah. had ever questioned how old I was. And yeah, right. Well, nope. shit, Rich, we won't get too into it, but you'd been stealing booze for years. <laughs> yeah, I was trying right. to say, <laughs> that conversation took place. You had like a cigarette hanging out of your mouth. You were drinking a, a Budweiser. <laughs> All right. So anyway, so, th- that type of battlefield, a sniper, uh, an, an IED, it's just this this huge unknown, and it's a morale crusher. Yeah, fair is that fair, Rich? No, no question about it. I mean, it's it goes to the the fear that we all have deep inside of us that nobody wants to admit that that we're afraid of our environment. We're afraid of something that we don't know what. And in in my case, it was snipers. In your case, it was was uh, IEDs or or VBIDs or yeah. whatever it might be. It's that unknown. Most people understand there is violence on the battlefield, and they're going to see that. The problem is they don't see the unknown. They don't see that particular angle of of loss of life. And so it becomes, it preys on your mind. Yeah. Because you're you're always wondering, okay, in my case, you know, does, does a particular geographic terrain feature, a hill, hold somebody or something that is going to take my life. And so you have to take that into consideration when you're moving through Iraq or you're in Baghdad and you're moving through the city, you're running into the same thing, just not necessarily geographical terrain. It's buildings, it's cars, it's people, and you never know where it's coming from. And it's always has you amped up. Yeah. And I, I think like, you know, whenever I thought about combat, I always had this like romanticized idea of what it would be like. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like s- something that I would see in a movie, but like the reality is not that it's, it's, you know, sudden it's violent and in the aftermath, it's confusing. And even if you, you do manage to do something heroic, the rub to it, the catch 22 to the whole thing is you could, you could actually be a hero. You could actually have done something heroic, be worshiped by your men, the whole nine yards, charge into a machine gun fire, drag somebody off the battlefield the real rub to the whole thing is when it's all said and done, when it's when it's 
the day is done and you're back and you got the medals on your chest and all the shit, you still feel like a coward. You know, you still feel like you could have done more and you can't shake it. And it's, uh, it's just so weird. It's just, this is a weird dichotomy that exists is like, once you actually are there, you're like, well, damn, I guess this is it. You know, I was, I was in a firefight. I spent the whole time fumbling around trying to change a damn battery or something. You know what I mean? For real. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And how do you try to compensate for the fact that, you know, you, you feel like a bit of a coward is you, you do what you say, well, how do I get more opportunity to be in more danger zones faster. Yeah. Right. So sign me up for special forces. hundred percent. Right. Then I got back from, from Iraq and that's, and I, I remember I told my mom, my dad, my girlfriend, I told everybody, I was like, I'm joining the special forces. And they were like, well that they're like, Hey, you know, newsflash. I don't know if you knew, like, I mean, we knew you growing up, you're for sure not going to join the special forces. And I, nobody told me, <laughs> nobody told me to my face that, that, that it wasn't going to happen for sure. But I, I could tell that there was a lot of doubt because I like, I wasn't a physically fit individual. I mean, my first PT test in the army, I think I did like 26 push-ups or something like that. You know I mean? It was laughable. Um, but I, I threw myself into it. It took me damn near a year and a half of training, but like, no joke. I went to selection, you know what I'm saying? And I got selected and it took a lot of hard work. I mean, just like, you know, and back, this was back in the day where you couldn't like sign up for like a program through softly HQ or whomever, you know what I'm saying? Right. And like get some people to help you out. Like you just had to figure it out. You, you know, you I couldn't even Google how to train for the special forces it would just a video of some guy getting tortured would have come up, you know? Yeah. I mean, I learned what rucking was in, <laughs> in the special forces qualification course. I mean, I had a little bit in basic training, yeah. then it was like, oh, you're going to do land nav with a 45 pound dry rucksack on your back for a, a million miles. I'm like, oh, okay. I guess that's what we're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or, or else you just don't do it. Cause you say, oh, I quit. Yeah. And that, that was the other non-option. So I guess we're going to do a lot of rucking. Yeah. And I mean, like, that's what it boiled down to. And, uh, I did a lot of, you know, wacky stuff. I was like, you know, on the internet trying to figure out ways to train so that I could get physically fit. Cause I didn't grow up, you know, doing athletics and I sort of piecemealed it together. And, you know, I, f- I figured the, the more I would suffer during my workouts, the better my chances were going to be of making it through selection. That was, that was the assertion that I made, you know? And so I would just try and beat myself up in workouts as much as possible. I rucked. I ran long distances. I did goofy Turkish get-ups and this kind of stuff. I would do, you know, hundreds of burpees with the hopes that when, I, when the day came and I was at selection, I'd be tough enough to make it. And, um, I didn't have an easy time of selection by any means, but I can tell you I had a lot easier time than a lot of guys that were there with me. So here's, here's my take on how to train for SFAS specifically, special forces assessment and selection. It is 99.9% rucking. Oh yeah. There's, there's a couple made for discovery TV moments of log PT and rifle PT. That's literally like six hours of three weeks. Yep. I mean, as long as you don't quit during those, you, you can you can suck at them yeah. by and large, right? Now, the problem is, is if you actually suck, then they start raining more pain down on you. But my my I guess my main point is the only real thing that you need to do to train for the physical portion of SFAS is to rock. Now, when you start getting into the mental side, the mental preparation. I think that that's what's worth its weight in gold when you're training for yourself through adversity, through whatever it is at your gym, in a pool, you know, in a, 
like whatever, right? Outside in a field with, you know, a sandbag, you can smoke yourself with a sandbag and a ruck till you drop, right? In a field, it takes discipline and stuff. But, but I remember doing the same thing. If I push myself harder now, I won't quit. And none of those exercises prepared me for log PT with a bunch of other dudes. You don't go to the gym and do that stuff, by the way, right? But it's the mental stuff where, hey, am I willing to stay out here an extra hour? Am I willing to stay out here an extra two hours? And you keep kind of digging your fighting position so that there's more on the line if you quit. Like, I don't want to make all that training worth nothing. I'm not going to quit when I get there. And you feel stronger mentally. And I guess you're a little stronger physically too, if you push yourself more and don't get injured. But I think it's the mental side of it that's that's more important. Yeah, it is. And um, it, one of the things they don't talk about a lot at selection is you, the same thing you talk about, the, you know, the, the National Geographic highlight reel of selection is a bunch of guys in a mud pit. But really like the hard moments in selection, I was by myself, like in the dark, in the middle of the woods with like 55 pounds on my back. And I was like lost. And like, there was a spider on my face. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> for sure. Like, and I tell people all the time, I'm like, listen, man, I was like, fun fact, you might not know about Ben Bun. I quit at selection. I quit at selection. There was just nobody around. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I was devastatingly lost. I, you know, I put my ruck five feet from a, a, a road. I pulled my woobie out of my rucksack and I pulled it over my face and I fell asleep on, on my rucksack by the road. Just nobody, if somebody would have come and found me, I would have been happy to quit. I'd have been eating soft serve ice cream and kicking my feet up and everything like that. But uh, as fate would have it, I woke up in the morning and found my first point for that entire night and uh, got told that I would have to go back out the next night. And then the next night I got four out of four points and they were like, hey, you're good to go. You know, kick your feet up. You know what I mean? Um, but there was nobody there to quit to, you know. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I would have been happy to quit. I'm not sure. Yeah. That's that's a hundred percent reality, but I I hear you. I was ready. I mean, I was like that, you know, I well, was did you have a flare with you? Because everyone has a flare. I didn't pop the flare. So I mean I wasn't all right. I wasn't so committed to quitting that I was gonna pop that flare. You were basically like just to to catch everyone up, you you have a flare with you. And yep. if you wanna quit, actually quit, you just take that flare out, you pop the flare. And then the white pickup truck comes and they're like, put your shit in or they just say nothing and you yeah. just get in the back and then they take you to the quitter's fire. Yep. I So I didn't do all that. Um, but I was, I mean, I was like, you know, it was like my first night of land nav and I had- uh, This I had, is the star course. Star course. Yeah. I had done kind of poorly. Like, you know, there's like practice exercises that aren't practice. If you do bad on those, it's not, it's not a good look for you. They take everything into account there. So I had done like not great and I was getting beat up on land nav and my first night I get like devastatingly lost. I can't even find my first point. My first point was like 12 kilometers away at Camp McCall is actually like 18. You know, you, you got to break that thing up into like five separate legs or some crazy shit like that. So I, I can't find my first point. I'm devastatingly lost. You know, it's like three in the morning it's or eating something. eating away at you. Yeah, just, I was like, this is it, man. I put all my, and I, at the time, all my eggs were in that basket. I was like, I'm going to be in the special forces or I'm just going to go home and die. You know what I mean? And um, I like, curled up in a ball. And I remember I was having all these nightmares, you know, like these like weird fever dreams of like, you know, people running to me and saying, here's your point and like all this kind of stuff. And I like woke up in like a panic 
finally found my first point. I get one out of uh, one out of four points that first day. And I remember I, and I was in selection with like four good friends of mine, like great friends, guys I still know and talk to to this day. Damn, I seen one of them last week. And uh, they were like, yeah, man, how'd you do? We got like three out of four. We just couldn't get that fourth point and stuff. And I was just like deathly silent. I didn't say anything. And I knew, and if you got one out of four points, that meant in one of those two sub- subsequent nights, you had to either get all four points or you had to get three out of four because they were going to rack and stack you against everybody else. And they're like, sorry about your luck, buddy. You're just not good at land. Nav. You're not going to be a green beret. So it was, the pressure was on. And that night I jammed through all my, I ran to my points and I found all four and I found them all so fast. The ruck run. Yeah. Go. Yeah. I found them so quickly that they made me dump my rucksack out because they thought that I had a GPS device on me. And I, I didn't. I just had what I humble did. brag, humble brag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, but like, but the night before, I was willing to quit, kind of, you know. So, but um, it's 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 an important lesson, though, right? I mean, the the sun will rise in the morning. Yep. And if we live our lives knowing that, just remember that, right? Today's really shitty. The sun will rise in the morning. So, all right, let's fast forward to when you get to you 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 earn the special forces tab. You're a green beret. What does this mean next in your career? So um, I, I spent a, a good amount of time in the special forces, went on several more deployments after that. You know, I, I was like, you know, doing deployments to both Iraq and Afghanistan. And honestly, they were like everything I had ever wanted. Like I was like fast roping. I was blowing in people's doors with linear flex charges. And I mean, it was like literally like everything I had seen in the movies. But same thing we talked about earlier, you know, what you see in the movies and how it feels in real life are these like two very, very, very different things. So what were the sort of highs, lows, lessons learned, stuff like that from, from deploying as a, as a Green Beret? You know, honestly, it, it really, for the most part, only kind of felt like highs. Like I, I got everything I'd ever wanted. I had the cool gear, the cool missions. You know, I was like balling up guys that were like the head of Taliban um, and all of like northern Iraq, this kind of stuff. But when it comes to like lows, I guess the, the lows were that, you know, I was like, this is it. This is, this is what I'm going to do for the next X amount of years of my life. And I kind of put some thought into that. I, I you know, there'd been some difficulties in my personal life. I, at the time I was with the same woman for like seven years and we were engaged, but being in the special forces was everything to me. Like it was more important than anything. And in a way, so it was like going to combat. Like, you know, I was just always about like, when's the next school? When's the next deployment? I was never like, when's my wedding? Or when am I gonna be able to spend time with my family and friends? That never occurred to me, ever. And I started seeing the effects of that kind of uh, hit my personal life in kind of a big way. You know, me and my fiance at the time ended up splitting up. And I was like, well, you know, damn, this, this might be, you know, an opportunity for me to slow down, take a tactical pause and maybe not be so deployment or combat obsessed. And I was very much that I was like, I'm ready to go to the next school. I'm ready to deploy right now. Um, so, you know, and you, you really love this girl. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I, yeah. I, I loved her to death. We, we were together in high school and then, um, we ended up breaking up in high school. And then I, I came back from basic training and AIT and was like, you know, like thin and more athletic looking and somehow seemed like I was more purpose driven because, you know, I was, um, and ended up getting back together. And she, she loved the guy that I was becoming, you know, 
she thought it was amazing that I was able to turn things around and I became like purpose and service oriented. Um, but what sh she didn't bargain for, neither did I, was understanding what a significant toll being a member of the special operations community takes on your personal life because it's you're married to it first and everything else comes second. And that is a very hard truth that a lot of guys have to stare down at some point. So how did that sort of take its toll on your on your life? Rich and I have had a million conversations about this. You know, I I've went through this exactly where what is what's the right balance? And it for me, it just it took an extreme amount of just toll on me, like trying to answer that question. You know, it, it, it took a long time. And, you know, as I, you know, joined the special forces and continued to deploy and stuff like that. And, you know, we broke off our engagement. The two of us weren't together anymore. You know, I saw that when people first deployed back in the day, like if you had deployed a couple of times back in like 2005, you were a goddamn war hero, you know, and people wanted to just like be able to touch the magic. They wanted to just be close to you and know what it was like and thank you for your service and all that kind of stuff. Look, guiltily, I loved it at first, you know, I really did. But later on, I, I came not to, not to like it. I came to dislike it, as a matter of fact, because it was a reminder of all the things that I had missed out on. Because while I was in combat or while I was training for combat, real life was going on all around me and I was missing out on it. And the reason I was missing out on it wasn't necessarily because I was gone or I was training or anything else like that. I just didn't even care to participate in any way, shape, or form. I was like, all this is bullshit. You go ahead and roam around the cereal aisle back at Publix you know, wherever you're living, you know, like a fool. I was like, real life is happening over in Baghdad. That's real. That's, that, that's real life. You know what I mean? Real life is combat. You know, shit is real over there. And you don't know because you haven't been there. And I was like, and, you know, your, your car lease or your goofy Algebra 2 class at Hillsborough Community College, that's all bullshit. And what I didn't know is that's not, you know, I couldn't, you can't be at war forever. The war is going to end. Matter of fact, you've got to retire. You can't stay in. Somebody's going to make you get out at some point. It's not a matter of when it's going to end or if it's going to win. It's when it's going to end. And real life is going to be waiting for you. The cereal aisle is going to be waiting for you. You know what I mean? And you don't want to be that veteran that's standing in the cereal aisle confused and upset and it has no personal life. Yeah, so we're talking about Hurt Locker. Yeah. Right? I mean, one of the, the greatest criminal acts against the veteran population is the movie Hurt Locker. So it's it basically it it won Best Picture, it, Time Magazine I believe, I, I it's it's etched into my brain so I'm pretty sure when we fact check this it's going to come out okay. Called it a near flawless movie, oh. right? And and so it it's talking about post traumatic stress disorder and and this this idea that war is a drug and you go back and all of a sudden he's in Baghdad and you know, then he's got a, a hoodie on and a pistol and he's going to go back into the city and he's going to, you know, do all this stuff. And it's just, it's crazy talk, you know, in, in explosive ordnance disposal. I mean, God bless those guys. I don't want to be anywhere close to a bomb and they, they have to, it's, it's crazy work that they have to do. I, I got it. Right. But then to, to get to your point, he comes back home and we've all been there in the transition. You yep. come back home, and it's just not, and you describe some of yours, it's just not quite right. And, you know, most of your, your basic needs are met when you're in the army and you're deployed. Hey, I remember there was cereal boxes. It's like, you, you know, there's cereal boxes. They come and it's like the same ones my kids got back at home. Now there's, there's corn 
pops and frosted flakes and apple jacks and shit. And you just take them and you put them in the bowl and then you put the the milk with the shelf life of 25 years and <laughs> you put it in the bowl and then you eat it. It's great, right? Yeah. If, if you don't have a bowl, then you put the milk inside the plastic thing that the, you know, that the cereal comes in. And then you either, if you don't have a spoon, which you probably do from an MRE, but if you don't have one, then you just, you know, drink it out of the actual plastic bag. You, you'll be fine, yeah. right? And anyway, he comes back and to emphasize this point about how war is a drug, he's he's in the, the aisle at the grocery store and he just can't make up his mind about which cereal because there's too many choices. Now, yeah. that's not the scene I object to, but it's this idea that all veterans are broken because you come home and you have an issue or two. Yeah. Right? And and they they kind of wrapped it. It's like they wrapped the whole movie in this idea of this is reality. And it was a very political statement against the Iraq war, which look, this is America. You can like, we don't have to agree about anything. Right. But the problem is, is, is it, it put troops in the crossfire to me. And I think that we're still living with that from the standpoint of there is a perception out there of, I, I support the troops. I'll donate to the causes that, that will help the troops but they're probably all broken. So I don't want to hire them. Yeah. And, and if they're working next to me, to, to my left and right, then, uh, that's a problem. Yeah. And it, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky balance. Right. And like, I think, you know, for me at least when it comes to like, tra I know transition is like a significant issue for the veteran community, but really like transition from anything is right. Like, I mean, going from high school to college is painful. Going from college into the private sector is painful. Any kind of transition that you can think of is inherently difficult. And I think um, there's a lot of focus on veteran transition, but like, it, I think sometimes they focus on the wrong issue. Sometimes people are like, man, veterans are broken and they're killing themselves. I'm like, yo, man, suicide is a is a American problem. It's top 10 killer of all Americans. You know what I mean? It's not just getting veterans. Um, but I think what the real issue is, is like, you know, transition, um, strong communities, like cohesiveness in your family. So for me, the biggest issue wasn't that necessarily I was so broken because of the things I'd seen and the things that I had done is I just didn't have strong a strong community or a strong place to find myself outside of the special forces once I got back to the to the private sector. And the way that I found it was just like going to college, you know, and I was immediately in an extremely strong community. You know, I was a resident advisor. I participated in like intramural sports. And it was like the healthiest and happiest I'd ever been in my life, you know, as a result of just like hanging out with other people, like breaking a sweat a couple times a day, that kind of stuff, you know. So my big thing on veteran transitions, I've got three things. They work for me and I, I prescribe them to all veterans whenever possible. First off, use the post 9-11 GI Bill. Oh yeah. Go back to school. You, you, you get almost paid to go back to school. So for the folks out there that are paying these taxes, the, the government will pay for the tuition and then you get some, a book allowance, you get a housing allowance. So first off is use the post 9-11 GI Bill. Second off, get a dog. Okay, so a community, to bring up what you're talking about, a community can be as simple as you and your dog. Two is a community. It's, it's the start of a community. You want it to grow, right? But, but what happens is, is when you're alone by yourself, wishing you were back in Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam or wherever, because that's when you felt like you were on a team, Yeah. right? 
Well, you've got a dog, you've got a team. And by the way, the dog has to go take walks and do his business and stuff. That's what Java was for me. And the third is work really hard. Whatever you're doing, work really hard because, you know, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And that's what we know. We know how to work really hard. And so it just, it takes a little time to sort of work through some of the the differences. That That's my experience. And I, your sounds very, very similar. Yeah. It, you know, it, it was, I didn't, I didn't get the dog until like 2016. Um, but when I finally, you know, I was like not a dog person. I was a cat person guiltily. I had a bunch of cats, but, uh, I got a dog named Jolene now for those, those who don't know about it named after my favorite Dolly Parton song. Um, she's rescue dog. I love her to death. You know, she's like, I don't think I've ever loved anything like that in my entire life with the exception of my son. Yeah. (laughs) Big caveat, my mom and my son, potentially my sister, my sister and Jolene are right up there with one another. You know what I mean? But, uh, (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, like I think, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a big deal. Right. But that same recipe of, you know, find a community, work hard, get an education, you know, like dedicating yourself to a craft or vocation and getting an education, you know, arguably kind of like the same thing. 10 out of 10 economists will tell you that the best investment you can make is an education. You know what I mean? Nobody's going to disagree with it. Um, finding a community people that you can stick with and grow with and like have real, actual relationships, you know, like people that are actually your friends, good friends will help you move. Great friends will help you move a body. Um, and then, you know, working hard, like you said, like, you know, the, it is like the, you know, the idle hands are the devil's play things. And, you know, I think, um, personally, I, you know, I, I struggle whenever I have too much free time, you know, the next thing I'm going to do is like spin off the, 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 the cap on the, on the bottle of Jameson Next thing you know, I'm, I'm depressed and having problems. It's like, yeah, man. Cause you know, you're getting, you, cause you're, you're binge drinking, bro. You know what I mean? Like that is a, a recipe for disaster. But like, as it stands now, I have extremely strong community. I got a great dog, you know, I've got tons of education and I got, a, you know, two jobs that are both extremely demanding and I'm doing better than I ever have. That's a fact. All right. So let's go back and, and talk about the rest of your, your military career. Cause you, you then transitioned a little bit, right? Yeah. So I, um, I took a position at the university of Tampa's ROTC program. I was an enlisted guy at the time. I had just pinned U seven. Um, so newly minted Sergeant first class. So I was an instructor there and there was a, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, his name's Rob Proctor came from Ranger battalion. He's best. I mean, he was amazing. He was the first first man I ever looked up to in my entire life. You know what I mean? Like I didn't have a lot of male role models growing up. So what's up with your, your dad? What's the story there? Oh my God. My dad is like, dude, we do not get along. He's like Darth Vader. Right. So, well, all right. I'm not going to say Darth Vader. So my, my, <laughs> well, you just did, but yeah, yeah. You already did. it's already, it's out yeah, there. It's, it's on the interweb. So my dad and I don't have a great relationship. Um, and, uh, a lot of it just has to do with him. Him and my mom had problems and they ended up getting a divorce when I was about six years old and uh, he wasn't around a ton. Uh, and when he was around, it, it typically speaking, wasn't a positive thing. My mom, uh, remarried a guy who's a man of color. Um, he's been my stepfather for 26 years, although they are separated now, but I still keep in contact with him intermittently. Great guy. I have a ton of respect for him. And he did a lot for me as, as a father. Um, but you know, this guy, Rob Proctor at the university of Tampa ROTC program, he was just like a military leader in every sense of the word. He probably doesn't even know this. He probably doesn't even know how much I respect him. You know what I mean? Or what an impact he had. And I remember he, he would tell me all the time. He's like, you know, you should just, he's like, I'd give you a scholarship to be, um, an officer right this second. I'd, I'd give you one, no questions asked. 
And I was like, you know, officers are ridiculous. They're all idiots. I'd rather die than be an officer. And he's like, you know, Ben, you know, if you think you could do a better job, I'd love to see you try. Literally, as soon as he said that, like days later, I like signed up. I signed the contract. And then I was a cadet. I was like literally in the same class that I was like an instructor in. You know what I mean? It was ridiculous. Um, and then uh, spent the, the next year and a half, two years in college and commissioned as an officer. And then this led you back to back to war, right? It sure did. Uh, you know, all all roads lead back to war. At least it did at that time. So you know, I I was a newly minted um, second lieutenant, and I was in the 173rd, the the 173rd uh, in Vincenza, Italy. I was first five oh first of the five oh third, first rock for anybody that's you know gets excited about that kind of thing. Uh, but. Uh, to be honest, I, I love that job. That was that's my favorite job I've ever had in the army was being an infantry platoon leader in the one five oh three. So why? I think at that point I was old enough to How old were you? I was thirty one. I was thirty one when I became a platoon leader. I mean, oh man, you got like one foot in the grave, right? <laughs> yeah. Rich Rich is staring some <laughs> evil stares my yeah. way. You know, uh you know, I mean, I was out of my 20s. Um, I had some, you know, I had a, a lot of combat experience at that point. I had been in the special forces and I just had like a, a lot of respect for the men and women that were in uniform. Like I was aware of it at this point. And I knew that there was opportunity in the private sector, the same way, the way that there was in the military. I remember when I commissioned, I remember thinking to myself, I was like, damn, man, I could like probably like go do something in the private sector and be successful. Like I've learned a lot here. And I walked into college as this guy who was just like, everything was black and white. And I came from the military and I had a, an ultra conservative view of politics and everything else like that. And I walked out of college very different, you know, because I went to a very liberal school and it was a very open-minded organization. Um, as a resident advisor, I had exposure to a lot of different clubs and organizations that specialized in uh, the LGBT community, um, ethnic organizations, the whole nine yards. So I got exposed to like this brand new world and it was like very eye opening. And I just got to see a lot of what else was out there other than this like echo chamber that was just the, you know, the only thing that I thought was good in life at that point was just like getting radical and being in gunfights. And then I was like, oh man, there's like a lot of other stuff out there. And I learned a lot and I went back into the military with a very open mind, but that same open-mindedness really helped me like respect and understand the sacrifices these young men and women were making by joining the military at such a young age, sacrificing their youth to be where they were doing what they were doing, serving their country. So it just felt like there was so much more responsibility that second time around as a, as a commissioned officer. And I, I felt very real responsibility for the lives and welfare of my soldiers. And before that wasn't the case. Okay, so you have a memorial wristband on. That's right. That's right. Tell me about it. It's, uh, so it's Brandon Landrum. Um, Brandon Landrum is a guy that I went to the infantry officer basic course with. And I've lost a lot of guys over the years. I mean, somebody. I was talking to somebody on Memorial Day, and they were asking me how many people I've lost over the years. And I was just like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, like tons, you know what I mean? Like I can't, I, you know, it's, I got a Rolodex full of it um, and I can't keep track of it in that way. And what I'm not going to do is, is continue to revisit it all the time. But I will say this, when I was in the infantry officer basic course, it was very challenging for me. And I walked into it thinking that I knew everything because I was a green brain. I had a long tab and I learned that I didn't know everything. And I knew that 
I learned there that leadership takes a lot of sacrifice. And a lot of times you got to lean on the guys to the left and right of you in a really big way. And I made some friends when I was in the infantry officer basic course that were some of the best friends in, of my entire life. And one of them was Brandon Landrum. And me, him, and, and the rest of my friends, we used to hang out every single weekend, every single weekend, right? And I remember Brandon Landrum, he had this, so his wife Miranda at the time, they would get a babysitter on Friday nights and they would come out and hang out with us. And we used to go to this place called The Loft and we would drink uh, well whiskey and, you know, drink Budweiser and have the a, good stuff. Yeah, the good <laughs> stuff. You know, I would, I would always order a shot and a beer. I was like, I'd like a shot of well whiskey and either like a Budweiser or a Yingling or something like that. And um, every now and again, they would not have a babysitter and Brandon would bring his uh, son out, who was an infant at the time. And I'm here to tell you that you would look into the eyes of his son and it looked like you were looking in Brandon's eyes. And I remember that all. It's the, it's the one thing I remember about him more than anything else is the way his son looked because it looked exactly like him. And I remember as I was getting ready to leave, I, I had just left Afghanistan and I'd come out the back of it okay, and, I, and we experienced some of the most intense combat that I'd ever experienced in my entire life as whether it had been a Green Beret, just some Jimmy that was fixing radios back in the day, or as an infantry platoon leader, it was, it was bad. Like, it was as bad as it could get. And I got back, and I was just, like, living the high life in Italy, felt like I was on top of the world, and I found out Brandon had been killed. He had been killed. He had been killed in a roadside bombing, and it wasn't just him. It was his, his entire vehicle. And I don't know, something about it just felt so it just it just felt like it wasn't supposed to be him. You know what I mean? I remember his wife and his kid looking at me. You know, Brandon had these dark eyes and it, I and I remember it and I was just like, damn, dude, like that's not the guy. You know? So was he stationed with you or where was he stationed? No, at the time he was like in like fourth ID or something wacky like that. He was in some mech unit or something. And um he, it was funny because he had actually ended up um, getting to Afghanistan at the same time as I was leaving, but just in a different spot. And I remember, you know, I mean, we had a bunch of different LTs. We all had like yeah. this like network and he was like in our crew. There was like this group of five guys that hung out. You so know? where specifically, where exactly were you when you got that? Oh man, I remember exactly. I was sitting in my office and I was on Facebook and I'd saw it on Facebook. You know, I remember I immediately called um, another good friend of mine, Matt Jackson, who was like a guy who was just like me, just a complete, like some single 30 year old guy, complete freaking maniac. He had been some kind of goofy endurance athlete in Vermont, or all he did was go on like 40 mile runs and had like a pug, just like lived in the wilderness. It was just some weirdo. And like, I remember me and him used to talk, like there was guys that should have been killed. It should have been like, and I don't mean this in like some kind of romantic way. Like it should have been me. Like, no, it shouldn't have been me. I survived. That's how it is. That's the way the cookie crumbles, Jack. You know what I'm saying? Life is like that sometimes. But in reality, it should have been a guy like me or Matt because we're reckless. You know what I mean? And, like, if I'm being honest, we're the kind of guys who are like, I'm ready for this shit. You know what I'm saying? I used to tell my men all the time, if somebody shot at us, I was like, this isn't, like, break contact. We're going to finish it. These, these guys just tried to fucking kill us. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're going to finish this shit. You know what I mean? You better believe it. And guys like Brandon – had to go home to his wife and his kids. He would have been like, we should break contact. Not because he's a coward because he was thinking of his life back home. And I wasn't, you know what I mean? Not at all. And I remember I called Matt immediately on my cell phone and I was like, and I was able to get in touch with him. 
And we talked about it for about a good hour and a half. And then I called a couple of my other good friends, Walker Bauer and a few other people to just talk it through, you know, because it was, it, it was unbelievable to me. And I, like I said, I've lost a lot of guys over the years, but that was the one where I was just like in disbelief. I was like, I almost like, I was like, there has to have been a, there's has to have been a mistake. You know what I mean? It couldn't have been Brandon, but it was, it was Brandon that time. So that's how it goes sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I know I've spent enough time with Rich. I mean, we, we all kind of have those, those guys. I mean, what, what are you supposed to do? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't expected. It's not what, um, it's not, it's not, I mean, obviously it's not what anybody wanted, but like, I don't know, in your head, you always think about who it's going to be, how it should be. You see these movies and you're like, this is how it's going to be. And this is how it's going to go down. But at the time, you know, I heard about it, you know, and, you know, he got killed in a roadside bombing. Several other soldiers died in the same incident. And it just seemed like senseless. And I was just like, damn it, man. Like, And, and you carry it with you forever. Yeah, forever. And I'm like, you know, and I was like kind of furious. And I was like, God damn it. You know, now, I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carry this with me for the rest of my life. Switched out one KI bracelet for the next one. You know what I mean? That's literally how it went down. I was like, well, I'm, I'm done carrying this one for a while. And I'm going to carry this other one now. And, uh, and I have been, I have been for a while. And I, and I think about Brandon all the damn time, all the damn time. And which is strange because I wasn't there for it. You know what I mean? Which is, is really weird. For some reason, that one just seems so acute at the time. But deep down inside, you feel like you should have been. Because we always want to take care of our brothers. You talk about families. You know, since man was a Neanderthal, we have congregated in groups. We, we look for our communities, whatever they might be. And one of the biggest problems that exists, and it's specifically in special forces, and it includes the military too, is that you're running actually two parallel universes, if you will. You've got family on the team or in your unit, and you've got your family in your normal life. We call it that. And it's really hard to juxtapose those because you want to look out for both sides. You want to make sure that your family is taken care of, whichever family it is. And when you can't be there to take care of that family, it's a real hit on your psyche. Yeah. You know, at the time, it was we were all just like a bunch of single guys kind of hanging out at Fort Benning mm -hmm. and tearing it up. But Brandon like had a wife, had children, had a family, you know? And he was different than the rest of us, you know? For, like kind of for that reason, you know? And I, I remember... That was the first thing that I'd said to to Matt when I got him on the phone. Was, I was like, damn, man, like, he had a family. You know what I mean? It rocked me. I don't know why. A, a wise man sitting at the end of the table once told me that there's a lot of things in life that you're just not really going to be able to make sense of. Yeah. And you, we just sort of learn how to we learn how to deal with them and we move on. And, and so next up, let's kind of talk about the, the next chapter in your life. Cigar City CrossFit fitness element, community building, all, all of that kind of stuff. So how did all this transpire? So, you know, you know, so I'd gotten into CrossFit when I was training to be in the special forces circa 2005, you know, I was at like Tucker gym doing Cindy or cherry picking goofy workouts, whatever at Fort Bragg. 
You know, I Tucker would, Jim. Yeah, I'd, right. Man, I haven't thought about that in a long time. Didn't that just That's, mess you up? Yes. So, Tucker Jim and the awesome. Air, and the Airborne PX. You know. Yep. Yep. Um, so I would be like in the goofy basement of Tucker Jim, torturing myself because everybody else was more fit fit than me because like everybody that joins the special forces, like used to be like the captain of the football team or like a dolphin trainer or something wild, you know, like <laughs> fit, handsome maniacs. And I was just, they were like, what's your background, man? And I was like, my mom's an English teacher. You know, I'm, I'm not good at running, <laughs> you know, like this kind of stuff. I've, but I'm decent with a rucksack on my back. That and was and my, the city of Tampa doesn't like me. Yeah, city of Tampa. <laughs> <laughs> Prosecuting DA down in, down in Hillsborough County has got a real uh, case of, uh, of Mondays when it comes to the old Ben Bunn. But um, so yes. I found CrossFit was the one competitive athletic thing that I kind of was sticky for me because I had never played sport. And it was the first thing that I found where I could like get points. Do you just have no coordination or what, what's the problem? Terrible. If you, <laughs> yo, if, if you saw me throw a ball right now, it is humiliating. Like it's a, it's a go, it's a running joke at the gym. Like people are like, get, get Ben to throw, like they'll try and figure out ways to watch me throw a ball just so they can all harangue me for how unathletic I look. Um, but so I got into CrossFit at, at Bragg, continued to, to, to be really, really into it. I get to the University of Tampa. I go to my first CrossFit Level 1 seminar because I want to learn more about it personally. I didn't have any, you know, hopes and dreams of coaching people. But then after I went to the seminar, and I was, it was taught by, like, a lot of OG individuals from the CrossFit community, like Pat Sherwood. Like, people have been in the community forever and, and are tremendous speakers. And I was on fire with, with it as when I left that Level 1 seminar. And I start essentially just doing a bunch of CrossFit with a bunch of my friends in the supply room of the ROTC building. And at the time I was still cadre and I was doing it with cadets. And what ended up happening is as I transitioned um, from being cadre to being a cadet, I had a ton of extra free time and we talked about it, right? Like idle hands. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to like, I'm just going to start doing CrossFit classes in here. I'm just going to coach CrossFit. And I've, I was of course, terrible at it, you know, horrible coach, not good at it, but I had a great time. We probably had like 30 regular ish members, people that would come by. We established hours. We were granted some extra equipment. We became a club affiliate and we were called CrossFit task force, like the whole, the whole shit. I mean, it, it, I loved it. And I did it the entire time I was in college. And it was kind of like the thing that I was known for. And the entire time that I was in the military, I used to always talk about CrossFit, like all the time. I was like, yo, when I get out, I'm going to start my own CrossFit gym and all this kind of stuff. And used to always talk about it. Real novel ideas. Yeah. yeah. Yo, uh, you know, starting a CrossFit gym when you get out of the, out of the military, a soft landing. <laughs> I can, I, there's not too many other things that you could do that would be a softer landing. Maybe starting a company that uh, focuses on rucks and rucking, uh, something like that. <laughs> the virtues of pain, <laughs> yeah. right? All right, so so I, I love this picture of the space where you are now. Because, yep. uh, you know, the space where you are now, it's, it's big and beautiful, and there's lots of equipment there. And the early days weren't exactly like that. There was a lot of work that went into it in your kind of transition to that. Tons. And uh, people don't talk often about the amount of hard work that goes into starting your own business. And it's, it's personal, you know, because it's this thing. It's not like you're just clocking in at a nine to five. It's not like you filled out a, you know, 
uh, application at Progressive Auto Insurance. And if you don't like it, you can just walk away and you're like, whatever, I'm just going to go get another job. I wasn't invested in this. You know, you're emotionally invested in this, in this thing, this idea. And a lot of times when you start your own business, you've talked about it for years. You've draw, drawn pictures on napkins, you know what I'm saying? You know, furiously scribbling in a notebook when it comes to t-shirt ideas, where it's going to be, what you're going to do. It's going to have all this awesome stuff. And it's a dream. So if it de- if it doesn't work out, there just seems like there's so much at stake. You know what I mean? It's like somebody literally ri- like lighting your dream journal on fire in front of you. And you'll work tirelessly to make sure that that dream doesn't fail. And that's that's what it's been for Cigar City Cross. And I'll tell you, the the last four months have been brutal you know the the shutdowns and everything else but the the thing about it is is and the shake-up yeah and the shake-up in the crossfit community right now it's very real and i mean i'm telling you it's the last thing that we needed at the at the tail end of a shutdown that put us all in dire financial straits you know was was for something like this to have happened or potentially the tail end of the first shutdown yeah you know like this could happen again you know what i mean and um i know affiliate owners the world over are reeling right now. They've had a very difficult time, but, and it, and it was difficult for me too. And it, you know, it, it could, this could have been an easy way to get out. You know, I have a day job now, you know, I could have easily have just walked away. It pays me well, but the gym is my dream. You know? So the, let me just catch the listeners up real quick or shoot, Ben, you catch the listeners up real quick. All right. After about four years of running the gym, just, that was my sole job. Um, I started doing a little bit of consulting work, mostly for like nonprofits and some some smaller companies and around just because I had developed enough business acumen and reputation for doing great event planning that individuals started approaching me with additional work. And I was like, dang, this is kind of cool. I'm kind of making more money. I'm having fun. It seems nested in what I'm already doing. And I was approached by an organization called Bravo Sierra. Um, it's a men's care company. Um, it's a native military brand, outstanding individuals, you know, more than half of, uh, our, our executive staff and, and current, uh, employees hail from the military. Most of them from special operations, bunch of guys from Rangers and the people that don't hail from the military all have like Ivy league educations. I mean, it's a bunch of rock stars. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Which part? The Rangers or the Ivy League? No, Rangers are awesome. (laughs) The Ivy League education? Well, I feel stupid most of the time. So, yeah, I mean. Okay, so Bravo Sierra is great stuff. Military, simple. And that's kind of the branding. Simple, Mm military-inspired. Men's grooming products. Is that the right way to say it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. And like, I mean, it's, I'd rather just say it's, it's, it's like soap and shampoo and stuff. Can I just call it like that? You can, you can totally call <laughs> it like that, whatever the brand is to you. And that, All right. So the other stuff with Cigar City CrossFit yep. so, is, is relative to recent statements and let's catch us up there too. Oh yeah. So, um, so at the tail end of COVID-19, the, at the tail end of a, of a particularly nasty pandemic, which resulted in the gym being shut down for about two and a half months, which negatively impacted our revenue, obviously put us in dire financial straits. Um, kind of, we're, we're back open. I'd been back open for about two and a half weeks and the founder and CEO of CrossFit, Greg Glassman, uh, uh, by the way, is, is somebody that I adore and respect and have watched what he's done closely for like the past 13 years. You know what I mean? I've watched every video, every speech he's ever written every article he's ever written. You know, I've, I I just have a a ton of respect for what he's done in the, in the health and wellness community and the fitness community. 
said something horrifically offensive, right, in response to something a health organization posted about um, algorithmic predictions of racial inequality as it pertains to health. Basically, they said, hey, listen, you know, racism is its own pandemic. And he responded by saying Floyd 19, essentially, it's hard to say what that guy was thinking when he said, it's hard to say what Coach Glassman, you know, actually had on his mind when he made that comment. I don't think that, I mean, this is a guy that a couple years ago was building wells in Kenya. I mean, so if he's, if he's racist, you know, he's, he's got a, a strange way of saying it consistently, if that makes any kind of sense. Yeah. I mean, and if you can't tell from Ben's story, I mean, like, I didn't know your, your stepdad was a man of color. Oh yeah. I didn't know all of this stuff, but it's always been obvious. You're a pretty open liberal ish, uh, you know, yeah. not, not politically, just in general. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're, there's lots of words that are coming to my head, but I'm not going to say any of them. Right. Yeah. I'm just going to say you're, you're a very open guy. What, what do you got, Rich? You're an acceptor of people based on them and their personalities, as opposed to color of skin, race, creed, whatever. Very uh, much so. You, you accept people based on their ability to be people. Yeah. And I, I, I think for me, it's always been character first. You know, I always, I think a, a person's, you know, who you choose to be romantically involved with, the color of your skin shouldn't dictate the way that you're treated in this world. It should just be your character. And I'm a firm believer in that. And, and yeah, like my, my stepfather, 26 years, man of color. L- listen, my, my nephew, who I adore, like, you know, obviously he's like related to me. It's like, he's going to grow up to be a man of color straight up. You know what I'm saying? So you know, it's an issue that's close to me. I, I, but I don't like shoot it all over Facebook. You know, I'm not like all over Facebook. I'm like, Hey, this is, this is why my opinion is more relevant. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, and that's a, a tricky time. And, and particularly during this time, I've, I've done my best to just like, listen. Um, and I want to remain as patient as possible so that I can be informed. And then once I feel I'm informed enough, then I can start making actionable decisions because I do feel that we're living in a time period where, change is happening and leaders in our communities have to take action in order to ensure that that change remains, right? Like if we want, do want to see real change, if we do want to see equality across the entire spectrum, whatever that looks like for you, and it's going to look different for every state, every community, every organization. So what does it look like and, for and you? And for every person. Yeah. For every person. Yeah. Um, so what in, is it? in Tampa. So what does it look like for me in Tampa? I've, I've been putting a lot of thought into that, and it's, it's been really tricky. I know that uh, men and women of color are not on equal footing. I've known that for a while, you know? And here's been the issue for me. I haven't said anything about it. I just didn't say anything. You know what I mean? I've seen racism. I've seen bigotry, and I've been silent. You know what I mean? Like, why didn't I say anything? Like, why? Why did I have to wait till this guy got choked to death? on on television before then I was going to recognize the issue. So for me, this is what it looks like. Um, everybody's got to recognize their their part in this institute, right? If for sure we do know that we're in a society where not everybody has been on equal footing, we got to raise our hands high in the air and we got to say, hey, listen, I've been in the room while people have said racial slurs and I just said nothing because I was a coward. You know what I mean? It wasn't an issue at the time. I sat in the middle of Tropic Thunder and laughed uproariously, even though I know it offended the shit out of a bunch of people of color. You know, I grew up watching Dumbo, which also, you know, had a a poor characterization of black men as a poor influence on the main character. 
there are so many ways in which I participated in this institute, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. But the fact of the matter is I was there for it. So the, what needs to happen now is I need to raise my hand high in the air and say, hey, listen, I recognize that I was part of an institute where men and women of color were not treated equally. I saw it go down and I was a participant because of that. But what I'm saying now is, is that I'm sorry. And what I want to do is I want to repair this. I'm going to acknowledge my, my part. I'm going to acknowledge that I've done wrong. I apologize. But what I do want to do is I want to charge forward into the future and make amends. And I want to make it known that I'm an ally and that I'm going to do my best to be better. And if I think that people, organizations, institutions in Tampa all raise their hand high in the air and say, hey, we were not perfect. We participated. We were part of this at some point in time, whether it was through action or inaction, and then acknowledge that it was bad, but just amend that we're going to be better. We're going to be allies you know, apologize for our part in it. And if we can all learn and grow, that's how we're going to get there. You know, this, this happened in South Africa back in the day, you know, but by every measurable mean that should have ended in an absolute bloodbath, but it didn't because everybody stepped forward and acknowledged their part in the Institute said, Hey, this is what we did. We were part of an organization, part of a country, part of an institution that did wrong, that intentionally put people on unequal footing, but we acknowledge our part in it and we're sorry. Now we've got to charge forward and, and cause we're all in it. We can't, it's not like we can pick up and move. You know what I mean? It's not like we can just you know, get rid of the people that have, that have done poorly in the past. We got to live with them. You know what I mean? So we have to make amends and we have to move forward. Look, equality is a hill worth dying on. Yeah, for sure. Bottom line. Yeah. Like let's, let's die on that hill and let's figure out what that charge looks like. And it's probably not the solution that you have with the, the first action that happens. It, it probably has to mature just a little bit, but bottle that emotion up and then charge. Right. Okay. So I got, I got a final question for you. Okay. Because th this will not be the last time that, that Ben Bunn is, is on the podcast. So my last question is, is what's your advice for the next generation? And I say that knowing how much you love your son, I say that as you know, how much you care about making other people better, whether it's through service at your gym in general, in life. Right. I mean, we've climbed a couple of mountains together. We've, you know, yep. done a couple, done a couple of cool things over the, had a, a few beers, told a few stories, but what's your advice? Like how does America get better through our next generation? What's your advice to them? You know, I've seen a trend in the United States where there's, there's kind of a, I don't want to say it's like a, a lie being sold, but there's a lot of people out there who are just like, Hey, listen, have the life that you've always wanted work part-time, you can just, all you got to do, you're just going to be able to travel and sit behind a laptop in Costa Rica and somehow still make $80,000 a year and raise a family and have the life that you've always wanted because it's, it's authentic to you. This is my, this is my advice to the upcoming generations. Lean into the hard things, right? Life is going to have portions where it's difficult and there's going to be tons of peaks and valleys, but I'm, gonna, I'm here to tell you, this, the sweet is not as sweet were it not for the sour. And if you have not had to work hard for what you have in this life, I guarantee you it's just not worth having. And for future generations, they need to focus on the idea that achievement comes through hard work and labor, whether it's vigorous physical labor 
um, mental labor or, you know, the anguish associated with maintaining long-term fruitful relationships with a spouse. It all just takes hard work and you don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be a gifted athlete. You don't have to be any of these things. You just have to be able to work hard. I'm trust me. I know people that are millionaires. Most of them are just, you know, they're jamokes, but they just work hard. They have a relentless work ethic. So, you know, work they're hard. They're what? Jamokes? Yeah, they're jamokes. You What's know? that? Just like kind of fools, you know? Have you? I mean, <laughs> I know it, there is no doubt that you have ran into like these like millionaires and these, you know, I've, I've run into like these people who are so successful in my, don't get me wrong, some of them are absolutely amazing. Like the people I work for right now, I'm just like, oh my God. But every now and again, I'll just like meet somebody who's like wildly successful, you know? They're like, like, yeah, you know, I'm like a lawyer. I get paid like 325 dollars an hour and you know i'm like a millionaire or something like that and i'm like you seem like a dummy you know what i mean but they were they busted their ass you know what i mean so you don't have to be the smartest the handsomest or anything else like that you just got to work hard man and it's okay to fail it is oh my god you're actually gonna you should you know if you yeah. don't you're missing out man you know what i'm saying don't get me wrong i hate it all right well ben bun thanks for coming on the show excited to meet with you tonight and tomorrow about some big fundraiser in florida Oh yeah, it's right. gonna happen. Rucking all over the state. Yeah, it's gonna be awesome. I can't wait. Team Red, White, and Blue. Bravo, Sierra. Go Ruck. Bunch of old friends. A yep. lot of miles. A lot of CrossFit boxes. Gyms yep. along the way. Gonna be awesome. Yeah, we're gonna do it. All right. So, Rich, what did you think? So you just met Ben when he yeah, rolled yeah, up. Yeah, I just met him when he rolled up, and I really I love to hear his story. I, I really like to hear about how he backed in to his career in the army and how he really kind of backed into life because that, that really opened him up. It brought about some changes in his life that he had not anticipated that were totally new to him, totally different than anything he'd done up to that point. And I like that. You know, some people kind of move into a life of service because they, they, they think they want to do something. Well, he basically kind of fucked up. And, and backed into a great life and a great career in the Army, time in big Army, time in special ops, then time back in big Army again in an interesting progression that, that normally doesn't occur. You don't see guys, a lot of guys doing exactly what Ben did. So it, it's not entirely the same, but the Vietnam War was going on when you went and joined up. Yeah. Right. I mean, you said, I want to test myself. I want to do this. So, I mean, it was staring at you in the face, right? If it wouldn't have been, who knows? Life would have been different. If, you know, you would have been living somewhere where they don't have war and, you know, everything's perfect. Who knows I'm, what would I might happened. still be hanging on a telephone pole somewhere. Exactly. Who knows? For me, same thing, right? I mean, I'm, I, I graduate college May of 2001, the towers fall September 2001. That adjusted my whole, I mean, I kind of backed into it as well in a different way, right? Where you say, I, I wasn't expecting this to be my path, but sometimes this is what the world does. This is how it goes. And you're, you're left to sort of react to it. Right. And I, I guess what I hope that people out there who listen to this get out of this is you don't have to back into it. Right. I mean, Ben was also already signed up. So he's kind of in the system. Being in the system is a good way to to be available as things right. as things are are important that you might 
might go go do. But we we all have the choice how we raise our kids, how we influence our neighbors, how we talk to those that are in our our communities. And I, I believe it's really important to to pose to our next generation the opportunities that are available through service and and military and, and otherwise. But I think it's important too, and I heard this in Ben's story. We continually reinvent ourselves throughout our lives as we change from one path to another. We're continually reinventing ourselves, and that's hard. It's hard to do. We're in the process of reinventing ourselves right now because of what's occurred after the pandemic. George Floyd's death is making many Americans reinvent themselves and how they look at life and how they look at those around them. And so those reinventions, whether it's going back to school and getting a degree that you didn't really think about prior, changing jobs, whatever it might be, it's really hard to do. It's not easy. But I think Ben's point of do the hard thing, make those changes, accept that life isn't necessarily fair. Life isn't fair. It's just life. You know, everybody says, well, you know, it's, I just want to leave a normal life. There is no normal life. There's just life. And it's hard sometimes, but it makes us better. Now, it takes time. Life doesn't change overnight, but it's something that we work through, and that comes with hard work, doing the hard thing, making the hard choices, not the easy choices. Everybody's looking for a silver bullet. Everybody's looking for the easy way to get rich, the easy way to live life, the easy way to have a career. There aren't any easy ways. You may find a few easy ways, but they're not worth it. Not in the long run, because really, you're not living a life. You're living a falsehood. Do the hard work and make good things happen for you and your family, whatever universe they happen to be in. Thanks for listening to Glorious Professionals. We'll catch you next time.